And we're continuing to move through the book of John as we have done so for the last number of months together. And we are studying John, continually reminding us for the reason why John wrote his gospel. And John is a beautiful gospel. He gives us such a clear picture in his pages as to why he wrote. These things were written in verse 31 so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And so as we study this book, we see this verse over and over and over again because we want to continually remind ourselves of the reason why John was writing. This is his purpose for the book. And wherever we're at, we're in John chapter 13 today. You can go ahead and turn there a while. Jesus is now focusing His full attention on His disciples and his closest followers. The love that Jesus has demonstrated throughout his earthly ministry most clearly expressed at the beginning of this chapter when Jesus kneels down to wipe the disciples' feet. We're going to find today that that very love will come to be betrayed. And today as a congregation, together as we open up the Scriptures, we're going to explore and unpack this betrayal. And we're going to answer these questions. How does betrayal work? Where does it come from? As we sit here today as a congregation, I'm sure there's probably not one of us who haven't experienced betrayal on some level or another. Betrayal is hurtful, it's powerful, and it's evident all over our society. So how does it work? Where does it come from? And how are we to respond? as brothers and sisters in Christ, in the face of betrayal. This passage is full of implications regarding Satan's role in the betrayal of Jesus and how Satan works in the lives of his people. And Jesus is going to shine the light on the spiritual warfare that's taking place behind the scenes of his own betrayal. So we're going to approach this text carefully today. We're going to approach it prayerfully Because we see that there's spiritual warfare involved in what we're studying today. And so before we begin to read, we're going to be reading verses 18 to 30. Let's bow and ask the Lord to guide our time together. Father, we come to your word every Sunday as a corporate activity because we know we're not in this alone. Your word is powerful and your spirit uses your word to produce fruit in our lives. We open the truth of your word this morning, and today we're confronted with the betrayal of your son, Jesus. And Father, as we sit here today as a congregation, many of us have faced betrayal in our lives. It hasn't felt good. It's been hurtful in many different ways and has had many different consequences for many folks who are here today. And so, Lord, as we gather as a body today, we're anticipating that you're going to reveal truth to us from your word about how we can respond and how we can live in the face of betrayal that we experience in our own life. Father, we intend and endeavor to learn lessons from the way that your son responded when he himself was betrayed by one of his closest friends. Would you guide and direct our time together, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 13, verses 18 to 30. 
Jesus is speaking. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you might believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. It was night. There is a heel here being lifted against Jesus. And you know, this was not a surprise to Jesus. We remember all the way back in John chapter 2 that Jesus did not entrust himself to men because he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew the condition of the hearts and the minds of the men that he had chosen to follow him. This betrayal was not going to come as a surprise or catch Jesus off guard. And even earlier in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 6, he had given the disciples fair warning that there was a devil lurking in their midst. John chapter 6, verse 70, Did I not choose you, the twelve, And yet one of you is a devil. The enmity of the seed of Satan against the goodness of the heel that had come to crush him was here now on full display. And now at this point in John, as we've studied this book together, we've come to find that not only did the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees hate Jesus, not only did the unbelieving world hate Jesus, but also some of his closest friends, by their behaviors, showed that they hated Jesus. The crushing of the serpent's head, friends, does not come without the bruising of the Savior's heel. And yet, it's interesting that the King of Kings would be betrayed by a member of his own court. Where have we seen this level of betrayal before? In the scriptures. Some of you can think that we've seen it before. We have seen it before. And Jesus actually quotes from the psalmist. In Psalm 41 verse 9. Where it says. Even my close friend in whom I trusted. Who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
So where have we seen this before? 2 Samuel. There's a story in the Old Testament, an account in the Old Testament. Some of you will remember the name of a person, Ahithophel. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 16, Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. And in 2 Samuel chapter 23, we're introduced to the reality that this man, Ahithophel, was the father of one of David's very own mighty men, Eliam. What Ahithophel will do to David is no less than a premeditated, gross act of betrayal. And if we don't look closely, friends, we fail to miss the reason for the bitterness that lies behind Ahithophel's action. Isn't it true that betrayal always stems from a seed of bitterness? Bitterness takes root and it begins to blossom and betrayal often follows. What's going on here? David, he's losing grip on his kingdom. His son Absalom has gone off the deep end. His behavior's been deplorable in so many ways as you read this Old Testament account. And David has continued to take a passive action against him because it is his son Absalom has amassed for himself quite the army to overthrow his father. And Absalom knew who the weakest link would be in what was thought to be the most impenetrable force, David's mighty men. And so Absalom, he has the momentum. He's the fresh and new guy with new bright ideas. He's the new popular one in the kingdom of David. And so when David's son Absalom approaches Ahithophel with the opportunity to overthrow the throne of the king, Ahithophel leaps at the opportunity to betray David. It's interesting how in the Old Testament, David, you remember David, he was pursued by Saul, the first king of Israel. And when Saul pursued David, he was pursuing David to take David's life. He wanted to kill him. And there's all these accounts in the Old Testament of David hiding out in caves because Saul's armies are chasing after him. And David's response to Saul, even when given the opportunity to harm him and take his life, was what? I will not lay a hand upon the kings, upon God's anointed. The same mercies, unfortunately, were not afforded to David by his own family. And so Ahithophel's bitterness grows into full-fledged hatred. And after the defeat of one of David's armies in a minor conflict, Ahithophel has an idea. He goes to Absalom. Now remember, this is a man who was connected with David's mighty men. One of David's trusted. He goes to Absalom and he asked Absalom if he could chase down David right then and there and put an end to his life. This is Ahithophel's moment. He felt the satisfaction of revenge at the tip of his fingers. He's ready to strike. And we see, church, that so often betrayal stems from the seed of bitterness and the consequences of betrayal are the premeditated hatred 
actions that are disgusting and deplorable towards other people. But it's interesting, isn't it? David is not a dummy. We get this throughout the Old Testament. In fact, David is one of the smartest, wisest generals in in the entire Bible. And David has prepared something. He has a friend, somebody who he could trust. His name is Hushai, if you know the story. And he sends this man, Hushai, into Absalom's court as a spy. And his job in Absalom's court is when Ahithophel comes to try to convince Absalom to let him chase down David and kill him, Hushai's job is to convince Absalom not to allow Ahithophel to go after David. Now some of us know this account. Some of us know what's happening here and what's going to happen. So Hushai actually wins the debate. And Ahithophel is not allowed to pursue David and chase him down and kill him. And Ahithophel, knowing that Absalom would not be successful and that he would never be able to stand before David again because of his betrayal, he goes home, he sets his house in order, and what does he do? He hangs himself. Why? What motivated Ahithophel's behavior? The father of one of David's own mighty men, a a trusted confidant, a companion in David's quarters. What could cause such hatred and such bitterness leading to such gross betrayal? Friends, Ahithophel was the father of Eliam. Eliam was one of David's own mighty men. And Eliam was the father of Bathsheba. You understand what's going on here? This is the grandfather. Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba and the grandfather-in-law of Uriah the Hittite. Now his betrayal and the bitterness and where it stems from becomes clear. And as David has been betrayed by one of his own, so too would Jesus now face a similar betrayal. So why would Jesus tell his disciples in this instance, in this passage, in John 13, why would he warn them and give them advance notice of his soon coming betrayal? Take a look at verse 19. He answers that very question. Verse 19, he says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. The word that was written in the Gospel of John was written so that we might believe. And the words that Jesus spoke were spoken so that we might believe. Specifically here, Jesus cares about the genuine belief of His disciples. Some did not truly believe as evidenced by the behaviors of Judas and friends. Church, this is a scary reminder. Judas, to me, is a terrifying reminder. And and I would think for many of you, it would be the same thing. A terrifying reminder that somebody who was called a disciple of Jesus, who followed in the footsteps of Jesus, who saw the greatest miracles that Jesus did, was not truly converted was not truly a disciple, did not have genuine faith. 
And Jesus here is anticipating that some of the rest of his disciples' faith might be shaken by this massive betrayal that's about to happen. And he's reminding them of the trustworthy nature of his words and his character. Let not what's about to happen to me shake the foundation of your faith. Jesus later says to them what in John 16? I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. People will hurt you. People will lie about you. People will betray you. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus has modeled for his disciples how to serve the world in verses 1 to 17. And now here, in the passage we're exploring today, he's demonstrating for us how we can live in the face of evil. In the face of lies. In the face of betrayal. And the hatred that's so evident in our world today. Church, we should anticipate it. We should expect it. We should be prepared and know that it is coming. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Judas's betrayal is clear evidence of this hatred. Church, this world here, this temporary place, this short gasp of air in the vastness of eternity, church, this is a battlefield that we're on, not a playground. We are aliens, we are strangers, we are foreigners, we don't belong here. This isn't our place. There's a real enemy here. He's lurking. He's seeking to steal, kill, destroy. The Bible tells us that we must live with an alertness to the reality of His presence. It's real. We must be cautious about the patterns of our lives. And as we do this, In all things, we can have great hope and great joy, for we know that our place is set aside for us. There's an inheritance reserved for those who are truly belonging to Jesus in heaven. And Jesus continues in verse 21, not wanting them to waver or be discouraged from the mission that he's calling them to. Look at what he says in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send the disciples, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Despite tribulation, despite the betrayals, despite the trials that we might face, church, we are to press on. Press on. We're reminded of the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet. When you leave that house or leave that town, shake the dust off, move on. It's not up to us whether or not people receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't know who the Spirit has prepared to receive the message of the gospel. We're just called to be faithful in sharing it. The gospel is God's power unto salvation, not our power. We have no sway over its reception. And as Jesus is sharing these things with the disciples, it's amazing here, he becomes full of emotion. Emotion overcomes Jesus in this moment. We're going to see it here in a second in verse 21. Perhaps because he knew that at the end, 
of their lives, many of his disciples would face a very difficult and unfortunate death. Perhaps he was even thinking about Judas' own end and what that was going to look like, which we'll explore later. Look at verses 21 to 26. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And this is when he testifies, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. These are human emotions, church. Jesus is displaying human emotions. They're being stirred in his spirit, wrestling with the end of his disciples, including his very own betrayer, stirs a pot of emotions that none of us can fully comprehend or understand. Jesus knew the suffering that each of his followers would face. He knew that Judas, when faced with the guilt and shame of his betrayal, would commit suicide. And if the water was muddy in any way regarding the identity of his betrayer, look at what Jesus does in the second half of verse 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The identity will now become clear. One of the men who has followed Jesus, who has walked with Jesus for most of his entire earthly ministry, one of those men who was sitting at that very table, your closest friend, think about it in relationship to that, one of your closest friends and companions. Not an acquaintance, not a neighbor that you see every few days, wave to and say, hey, how you doing good, I'm doing good. This is somebody you've shared your life with. A closest friend and companion. And can you imagine what that room looked like when Jesus said that? One of you will betray me. The sheepishness of it all. Would you even be able to make eye contact with each other? Which one of it is? I hope it's not me. Who's it going to be? It's interesting, in Matthew's Gospel, Judas actually asks Jesus the question. And I believe it was probably after he was handed the morsel. But look at what he says in Matthew chapter 26. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Is it I? And he said, You have said. You have said so. Amazing. Many scholars would agree that the writer of John does not ever refer to his own self by name in his gospel, but that he is the one whom Jesus loved, who we see in this text. It says the disciple who Jesus loved. Many scholars agree that's probably John here. And so Peter attempts to motivate this disciple to get a response from Jesus, and John looks at Jesus and asks a simple question, Lord, who is it? Okay, it's one of us. Who? Could you imagine the fear behind that question? What if Jesus would have looked at him and said, it's you. I mean, how much courage and how much bravery it would take to ask a question like that? Nobody knows at this time who it is. Only Jesus. And if the time is near, the disciples must know. Surely none of them want to be identified. Jesus is clear as he picks up this morsel of bread. Look at verse 26. He answers, 
this disciple, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Church, this is not the action of Satan. The scriptures are clear here. This is the action of the son of a man. Judas is given an identity that attaches him to his father. So what we have here is the son of a man betraying the son of man. Jesus. And just like that, the curtain is pulled back and we catch a glimpse of this vile orchestra master, Satan, commanding his influence over the power of darkness. And and this is hell's moment, church. All of hell can sing. A momentary victory. A heart has been turned. The deed is all but done. Satan's influence and his power over Judas at this point is too hard and too much for Judas to overcome. And look at what Jesus says in verse 27. This is a dark night, friends. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Let it not escape us, church, that even in the very moment that Jesus is being portrayed, what is he doing to Judas? Even in the very moment of his betrayal, he has a morsel of bread and he is serving his betrayer. Judas takes the morsel and the prophecy that was spoken in Psalm 41 finds its fullest intention in this very moment. And almost as immediate as the bread was taken, Satan enters in to Judas. Now there's there's some things we have to talk about here, church. Hard things. Difficult things, but it's important. We can't skirt around it. we got to go full on into it. There's a few keys here that are important for us to consider as we try to understand what is happening. First, This is not the first time that Satan has been at work in the life of Judas, is it? And we remember earlier in the text in John chapter 13, this very chapter in verse 2, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And as early as John chapter 6, verse 64, we're alerted to the reality that Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. Satan has been at work. He was active in the ministry of Jesus. Luke chapter 22, Jesus says to Simon, 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 this is his disciple Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fall, fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And we, we remember one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' earthly ministry in the desert. In the book of Matthew, he's tempted by Satan. Satan desperately wanted to thwart God's plan for salvation. Then, now, even today, he desperately wants the glory that only belongs to God. That is his nature, that is who he is, and it's who he's always been. He's alive today, he's active, 
He's the ruler of this world system, the prince of the power of the air. And church, he seeks his own glory, and he's most glorified when men seek their own glory above the glory that belongs to God. That's when Satan is most honored and glorified. So the first key that we would understand this morning is that Satan was alive and he was active during the ministry of Jesus and he's still alive and he's still active today. The second key is this, and we want to pick up and take a look at the phrasing that's used here in verse 27. Look at it together. It's right smack dab in the middle of the verse. There's a phrase here that we have to bring some clarity to. And you all can probably anticipate what it is by now. What does it say there? Satan entered into him. And this reality maybe strikes fear into us as we sit here together. How would Satan enter a disciple of Jesus? How is it that Satan could infiltrate the very heart and inner circle of Jesus' ministry? What is happening here? Can this still happen today? Does this still happen today? Can a genuine believer of Jesus Christ have Satan enter into them? Was Judas a genuine believer? Did anybody bring their scuba gear today? We're going to dive in. We're going to dive in. We can't escape the issues that are in the text. We have to address them. We have to dive in. So put your scuba gear in. Put it on. We're going to go deep. We're going to go into the Word. It's important that when we address these issues, church, I've said this from the very beginning, that we come from the Scriptures. It's the safest place to come from. Not human experience, not emotion, but the Bible. And the Bible has a beautiful way of answering questions that it provokes in our minds and our hearts. And and it's really truly a way that the Spirit works as we engage the Scriptures together. And we are going to take a bit of a dive here, so let's take a deep breath and Look to scriptures together. First, let's start by exploring the condition of Judas's heart and answer the question Was Judas a genuine believer in Jesus? What evidence in the scriptures are we given that might point to his genuine faith? And in fact, the entirety of the Gospels is incredibly silent regarding this matter. It actually goes in quite the opposite direction. We're told that Judas was a thief. Just in the last chapter we studied, remember John chapter 12. He said this, Judas said these things, not because he cared about the poor when Mary had anointed his feet, but because he was a thief. And the reality regarding Judas' life is this, and I find this very interesting. We have more evidence in Scripture of Nicodemus' genuine faith and he's only mentioned twice than we do of any genuine faith for Judas. So I believe that the Scripture allows us to safely surmise that Judas was a man who did not have a genuine faith in Jesus. It actually appears that the Scripture would more clearly affirm the opposite reality. Matthew chapter 26, verse 24. The Son of Man goes as is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. That's, those are strong words, church. Directed right to Judas. It would have better been better for that man had he not been born. 
And of course, following the act of betrayal, following Judas' betrayal, we see no remorse. We see no repentance. We see no seeking of forgiveness from Jesus. What becomes of Judas? Some of us know, but in case you don't, Matthew chapter 27. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Friends, those without a genuine faith in Jesus are walking in darkness. And we can clearly see evidence in this text that Judas's actions prove that he was a man who was walking in darkness. Ephesians chapter 2 is clear that the enemy is at work in the lives of those who walk in darkness. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So yes, Satan is able to enter those who do not have a genuine faith in Jesus. No, Judas did not have a genuine faith in Jesus. Yes, those who live in darkness are open to his power and his influence. It happened long ago. It can still happen today. Paul is not giving us rhetoric in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when he says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces. Friends, these are things that we often can't even see. You might see the consequences of them, but we don't see the physical reality of their existence. These things are happening. We must be careful. We must be watchful. We must be discerning. Now, we haven't yet answered if Satan's able to enter into a person who has a genuine faith in Jesus. It's a good question that follows. We probably need to address today. You know, years ago, there was this joke going around. Uh, I would hear it in church. I guess it was kind of a joke. I don't know. But somebody would do something that was wrong and, you know, something that would upset somebody. And sometimes in certain contexts, they would say, well, the devil made me do it. Did you ever hear that before? The devil, the devil made me do it. Can we say that? Can Satan really indwell and come into and enter a genuine believer? And we're going to look at some scriptures, but I love this quote by John MacArthur, and it's very powerful in regards to this. Listen to what he says. Quote, There is no clear example in the Bible where a demon ever inhabited or invaded a true believer. Never in the New Testament epistles are believers warned about the possibility of being inhabited by demons. Neither do we see anyone rebuking, binding, or casting demons out of a true believer. The epistles never instruct believers to cast out demons, whether from a believer or an unbeliever. Christ and the apostles were the only ones who cast out demons, and in every instance, the demon-possessed people were unbelievers. End quote. And it would appear, church, that we have overwhelming evidence in the Scriptures that speak against one of genuine faith in Jesus being able to be entered and possessed by the power of Satan. What does light have in common 
with darkness. 2 Corinthians 6, what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with a non-believer? Those who are truly in Christ have been delivered from the dominion of darkness. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Those who are in Christ have the victory. They've overwhelmingly conquered. And as John expresses in his letter in 1 John, they have overcome the power of the evil one. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who was sent from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. We are protected. Those who are truly in Christ, who have a genuine faith in Christ, are protected by the power of God as it's spoken in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. And the evil one cannot touch us. 1 John chapter 5, 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. Now, we share all that, and I believe it's incredibly hopeful for us, brothers and sisters, as we sit here today, to be reminded of those truths, that we're protected, we're guarded, that the evil one cannot touch us if we have true, genuine faith in Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that we can let our guard down and simply just ignore the power and influence of Satan that's all around us. In fact, the Bible would speak to the opposite reality. In 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Church, if we sit here today and we're truly in Christ with genuine faith, we have to remain alert and sober-minded. Yes, we can be hopeful, but we have to remain alert and sober-minded. I've had uh, folks over the years, friends, that have talked to me about these things. They've witnessed things. People have been in different parts of the world, even different parts of this country, and they've seen the consequences and the influences and the effects of evil and how it manifests itself in this world. And I have to tell you, I'm very sensitive to those things. In fact, I've had friends over the years that have had situations where they felt like this kind of presence or influence was evident somewhere in their life and they've asked me to come pray and I've come and I've prayed. Because we have to be alert. We have to be sober-minded. I'm sorry, but I I believe that there's too many pastors and pulpits today that are just willy-nilly about this. Oh, that's just a bunch of ho-hum stuff. Come on. The Scriptures would make it clear and obvious that the power of Satan is real. And we have to be aware. We have to be alert. We have to be on guard. As men and women in the faith, we can't be dismissive about these things and act if they don't act as if they don't exist and they're not real. That's what the evil one would desire. Are you ready to come back up for air? But his tank's empty. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's dive back into John 13 and answer this question. What is happening here. 
What is happening here in this text right now? As Judas begins this betrayal of Jesus, God in His sovereignty, in His overwhelming power, in His love, and in His justice is using Satan to accomplish His plan for our salvation and His own glory. And everything that is happening here in this passage is happening exactly according to God's sovereign plan and will for Jesus' life, for Judas' life, and for Satan's demise. And isn't it just like God to reveal to us in His Scriptures, in His Word, that the evil one actually plays a significant part in His own demise? Jesus betrayed, Jesus wounded, Jesus crushed, Satan defeated for all of us who are in Christ so that we might experience the freedom that's in Christ and eternity with God, all for His glory. And now that Judas's true intentions and his motivations have been revealed by Jesus Look at what he says at the end of verse 27 to Judas. What you are going to do, do quickly. This is painful. This is hurtful. And it will hurt the disciples and it will hurt Jesus. What you are going to do, do quickly. And those who've gathered, they fail to understand what's going on. And we can see that in the text again, in the human side of the human emotions. They're failing to understand what's going on here. Why would Jesus send the money man, who's also the betrayer, out from the meal? It made little sense. Was it to buy more food? They, they didn't seem like they were running out of food. There's nothing that indicates that they were running out of food. Was it having to do with their efforts to feed the poor and care for the needy? Or was it so that Judas could settle the matter of betrayal finally with the chief priests? Whatever the purposes of of Jesus was here, ultimately he sends Judas away so that the plans of God could be established and confirmed in Judas' actions. Verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. And the word night has been used before in John's Gospel and it should remind us, it should take our minds back to Jesus' word. Both in John chapter 9, we must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. In John chapter 11, if anyone walks in the night, what does he do? Stumbles. So here's Judas, friends, in a full-fledged stumble as he staggered in the darkness towards his ultimate demise, hanging from the branch of a tree at the end of a self-tied knot. That was Judas's demise for walking in the night. And the questions maybe to many of us appear obvious at the end of this text when we say, how might our lives look in light of these realities? And I would ask you this today as you sit here together. Have you ever been betrayed? 
Have you ever felt the pain of betrayal in your heart? Have the consequences of betrayal been real to you in some season of your life? And what I find incredibly hopeful, if you answer yes to those questions, is that Jesus Himself was betrayed. And He overcame the world. And it's... This text, if for anything else, this passage, if for anything else, is a beautiful reminder, church, that we do not serve a God that is not intimately acquainted with all of the things that we experience in this world. Being lied to, many of you in this room, that's happened. It happened to Jesus. Being beaten, it happened to Jesus. Being betrayed, it happened to Jesus. He understands. He's such a great high priest because he understands the emotions and the feelings and the realities of all of these things that we experience in this broken and corrupted world and this is a reminder this text is a reminder to us friends that we don't stand alone in these places though sometimes we feel like it i know the emotions And the consequences of betrayal often leave us in places where we feel like no one else can relate. No one else could understand what I just went through. No one else could understand the depths of the pain of what that caused in my life. There is one who can understand. And there is one who was uniquely acquainted to understand because he himself faced betrayal from one of his best friends. We are not alone. Our team is going to come this morning and we are going to sing about a reality that even in moments of betrayal, even in moments of heartache, even in moments of pain and hurt, when we have been destroyed by the very people that we love, the solid rock of our Savior is no less solid of a foundation for us to stand. Let's sing of that truth.